So did you know that there are flat earthers? There are people that believe that you can actually go to the edge of the world and fall off. Now, I have not asked Rich Williams, our resident um, American Airlines pilot, but my guess is that Rich would tell me that if he got in an airplane and he went due east and stayed due east, that he would go all the way and come back to where he started. I'm guessing that's the case. Um, I don't think that you got to a place where you had to turn around because you were about to fall off the edge. Now, there are those that believe that. In fact, there was a time when everyone in the entire world believed the world was flat. They didn't have anything else to base their evidence on. And so they were very comfortable with that evidence of flatness. But as science began to bring about evidence that this world is round, it sets on an axis, it spins in a universe, people began to say, hmm, there seems to be evidence that God is actually more wonderful, awesome, almighty in his creation of this universe than we ever thought before. And as they began then to examine Scripture, they actually realized that they could look in Scripture and see this creation of the universe that God has created for us. The evidence supported this premise. Now, I think that... Um, one of the problems that we have with this chapter that I started last week is sometimes we think God is flat or we actually think God is something that we would put in a box and he is predictable, he is uh, just what we think he is. In other words, we make God out to be, as some of the flat earthers may would say, we believe the earth is flat, and I don't think you can convince me otherwise. There are those that believe that the God of the Old Testament is no longer God, that there is no wrathful or justice in God, that God's just a God of love. There are those that believe that God is such a God of love that there would never be any wrath or justice from God. In other words, there is no one ever born or ever will be born that God would ever condemn. So for them, everyone goes to heaven. There are those that believe that God has changed his mind about things and thus, Scripture is no longer what Scripture once was held to be, and that is authoritative, God's holy word, God's actual word given to us. Romans 9 kicks that box wide open. It tears it apart. Because in chapter 9, as we saw last week, and as we will see this week, God is greater than anything that we can confine him to.
Last week, we looked at three principles that uh, was, were in these first 13 verses. And, and so there was you know, this understanding that redemption or salvation is, is never... It's never on the natural privileges. In other words, we cannot inherit our salvation. We have um, uh, ancestry, but yet we cannot inherit it. Education, opportunity, those natural privileges would never grant us that we would have access to God. Now, the Jews believe that in Paul's day, one of the reasons that he is writing and sharing this uh, with us, but what Paul says in those opening verses, we are not guaranteed salvation just because God has given us an ancestry or these special privileges. The second principle from last week was God always has a divine promise when it comes to salvation. And we see that over and over in Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is not based on our own works. We cannot be good enough or work hard enough to earn salvation. Redemption is always at the heart of the promises that God gives us. And then that third point from last week, Paul says that God's choice is never based on the behavior of the individual, whether good or bad. And he used Jacob and Esau uh, in this passage as an example that the um, older would serve the, um, the younger and that uh, Jacob was going to be the chosen one and not Esau. And this was done prior to their birth. They had not made any choices in life, but yet God chose Jacob over Esau. So what then, what is the basis on which God chooses? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at if God doesn't choose by ancestry or natural privileges, if God doesn't choose whether we are good or bad, then how does God choose to offer salvation, redemption, that is never based on human works? And what we're going to see is it's the potter's sovereign choice. It is the potter's sovereign choice. Before I pick up with verse 14, let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. I pray this morning, Father, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds for all that you hold for us through this, your holy word. We will give you thanks. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to do, as I did last week, read along as we go along in this passage. And so I want to read these five verses, 14 through 18, as we begin in this latter part of chapter 9. What shall we say then? There is no justice with God, is there? May it never be. 
For he says to, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power to you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. How do you take that in? Kind of hard, isn't it? It's kind of difficult to hear that salvation has nothing to do with my choice as far as being able to do it myself. It is God's choice of whether he chooses me. He chooses whom he wants. Now what makes this hard for us is this makes us feel like that something or someone has control over us. And so the fact that God is a sovereign being, he has no responsibility to anyone, he has to answer absolutely to no one. And that's hard sometimes for us as human beings to digest because we think of it as tyranny. We think of it as someone that has power over us, and that's uncomfortable. We don't like it a lot. In fact, our country, as it was being formed, did not want to see tyranny, that absolute power from one person that would control over us. And so they set up a government that had checks and balances, that had three branches of government so that they could check on one another and keep one another accountable. Now, I will tell you that we have some elected officials that, officials that have no clue how many branches there are or even what their names are. And I don't know how they got elected, but I'm just saying that's the way it is. These branches keep us this absolute power from taking over. And so, as we look at scriptures, and we know that God is sovereign, and God has power, and God is all, and can do all, and do anything that he wants, even that, for some people, causes some angst. But here's the thing. If God Almighty had to answer to anyone, guess what? He would cease to be God. Because you see, that's the definition that God Almighty is it. He's the final authority. There is no one that is over him. And we've got to get rid of this idea that his sovereignty is wrong. It's not at all. In fact, what I think we will see this morning is his sovereignty is our only hope. His sovereignty is our only hope.
In this passage, Paul declares that God's sovereignty, he says, God says to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I want to be gracious. I will show compassion to whom I want to show compassion. That's verse 15 here. But Paul is drawing from Exodus 33, 19. And so most of you know Moses. We think of him as the great leader who led the Exodus out of Egypt. But Moses was an Israelite. And Moses was a murderer. And Moses was a fugitive. He ran from justice. He buried the man in the sand and ran to protect himself. For 40 years, Moses lived in the desert before God comes calling. But God came calling. He came calling to a man that was all of these things, but yet he chose Moses. He chose Moses to be his messenger, to be the person, the patriarch, as we look even us as Gentiles and not Jews. We look at Moses as one of the great patriarchs of Scripture. And God chose him. He elected him to be his servant. And then David, or Paul, reminds us that in this passage, that not only did he choose Moses to lead, to be his servant, he chose Pharaoh not to be. You see, he chose Pharaoh and lifted him up and put him in power, one of the most powerful kings of all time, and he put him in, in power over the nation of Egypt and had Moses, his servant, confront him. And over and over again, we are told that his heart was hardened, that God hardened his heart so that his power, his majesty, all that God was about would be seen. In other words, here he says, I did this to demonstrate my power to you that my name might be proclaimed through the whole earth. You see, God chose Pharaoh on the other end of the spectrum to resist him, to reject him, to hold out against him so that God may be lifted up, that God may be seen as almighty, all-powerful for the God that he is. Now, this bothers us many, too. Who is God that he would boast or brag? In our society, it makes us jealous. When we see someone that boasts because of who they are or what they can do, it, it makes us jealous of them. What makes them think that they're better than me? But you see, God does not elevate himself because he has an ego or he's egotistical in any way. God elevates himself because of who he is and that he wants us to see him he wants all to see him for who he is, his goodness, 
that he is creator of all, that he is great and glorious and mighty and rich in those whom he calls and come to faith in him, enjoy life in him. This is who God is. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, in verse 3, Jesus says this, This is eternal life, that they might know thee, talking about to his Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is who God is, that he sent his son that we might know him and know who he is. God has invited man and woman, those whom he calls, to see who he is, his greatness and his power. And so in this passage, in this first, these first five verses, Paul reminds us that God will have mercy on who he have, will have mercy on, but he will also harden the hearts of those that he wants. But when we, we hear that and when we see that he may harden the hearts of who he desires, we want to say, wait a minute, I object. It's kind of like we're in court. I object. That's just not fair. Come on, God. That's not fair that you would choose some and not choose others. Well, Paul addresses that too. In verse 19, he says, You would say to me then, why does he, God, still find fault? For who resists his will? It's kind of like us saying, hey God, if that's who you are, then you're responsible you're to blame for me being wrong or evil or doing these bad things. It's your fault, God. It's your fault. And man has done that throughout the history of the world, blaming God. But the truth is, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Paul, in the rest of this passage, begins to say, answer this question. This question of unfairness, answering the question of how can God choose and how can God not choose. And we'll see this as we move along in the, there's four ways that he gives in this passage as we examine carefully how God is sovereign and how we should not question that sovereignty. The first is in verse 20. In verse 20, Paul says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The one, the, the thing uh, molded would say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? You would not do that, would you? Will you, he says. And so the question is, let's examine our, our credentials. Paul's saying, let's, 
Let's examine your credentials of who you are to, to say that you could be in some way equal or even question God about what he is doing. Let's compare. So man is finite. Man's knowledge is limited. Man's understanding is limited. And when I use man, I'm using mankind. Uh, women don't get thinking that um, you're excluded here that you are infinite? No, you're finite, just like we are. And so we have this finite frailness about us. Our strength is limited. Think about it this way. For if it was not that God would allow us to take our next breath, we could do nothing. And we have no control over the air that we breathe. You see, we are finite. We are foolish. We do hurtful things. We make poor choices. We try to use logic. And often the logic that we use or that we decide is the best way for us to act or to proceed ends up being foolishness because we are finite and limited in our understanding and knowledge. But that's not who God is. God is not finite but infinite. He is all-knowledgeable. He is all-powerful. He has all majesty. He is mighty and wise. He knows the beginning and the end and everywhere in between. He is creator God, creator of all things, as Franklin prayed in his prayer. God is an all-knowing God. And man has the audacity to stand up and challenge this God. And Paul says, may it never be. This logic, and, and I believe that one of the reasons that the book of Job was written is to help us give this understanding of man and God and who God is. We know Job. We know this book of where Job was a servant of God. And God and, and Satan uh, have this, this challenge. And the only thing that God said that Satan could not do to Job was kill him. Anything else was fair game. And we read the beginning of this book and we think, wait a minute, that doesn't feel good either. That God would allow Satan to do all of these things to Job. But Job loses his family, he loses his children, he loses everything he has. He suffers with boils and afflictions and physical afflictions. And he even has three, you gotta, I don't know how you call them, friends, but he has these three that come to him um, that um, say, okay, Job, come on, man. The only reason this is happening to you is because you've sinned. Cough it up, boo, dude. Come on, just, just tell us what you did so that you can confess and God can see that, make you right with him again. Just come on, Job, tell us what you did. They hound him. 
And finally, in despair, Job cries out to God. What is interesting is, after all that Job has been through, after all that he has lost, after all the physical afflictions that Job has had upon his own body, after being berated by his friends, Job does not blame God. What Job does, he comes to God and says, God, I need to understand. Can you just tell me what's your purpose? Why did I have to face all of this? I just don't understand. And then from verse or chapters 38 through 41, God comes to Job. And he says, okay, Job, um, but before you make your argument, let me ask you a few questions. Just a few questions, Job. This, this is what I want to hear you answer. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you when I created space, when I created the worlds? Where, where were you when I put the things that I've put in the sea? Where were you? Do you understand how the rain works? Do you understand how lightning works? How it appears in the sky? Do you understand this, Job? Job hangs his head. And then God says, Look at the stars. Look at their courses. Look at the flowers in the spring. Can you make those flowers come up in the springtime? Can you, Job? Can, can you, Job, keep Orion coming at the right time, streaking across the sky? Can you do that, Job? No, I'm not qualified, God. Well, let me ask you just a few more questions, Job. How are you going to handle Satan? Do you know how to handle this fantastic dragon that can wreck a third of the universe with just his tail? How are you going to handle that, Job? And finally, Job just falls before God. I'm not in your league. I'm not any way deservant of anything. I repent, I repent, he says, I repent. So Paul's argument here is, who are we to rail against God? Who are we? The second argument that Paul makes here is about our sovereignty about exercising our sovereignty. Don't we have a right in some way for our sovereignty? Well, look at verse 21. He says, Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What Paul is saying is, doesn't God have a right to do with his molding, what he has created? Doesn't God have a right to 
do with that as he wants. He can make a beautiful vase out of clay, or he can make a spittoon out of clay and anywhere in between. But we would say, but wait a minute, we're, we're really not clay. We have feelings. We have understanding. So don't we have some sovereignty here that we can claim for ourselves? In other words, how about my will? Now, if you got up and ate breakfast, breakfast this morning, you chose what you wanted to eat. God didn't say, Franklin, you're going to have a banana this morning, and that's all you're going to have, which I know Franklin had a banana this morning because he has one every morning. You have some will of your own, but when it comes to the will of God, God's will purpose trumps everything. God molds us and makes us after his will is Paul's arguments, argument here. We'd say, okay, but that still doesn't solve the justice, the, the unfairness that takes place. And so Paul answers that question with his third argument um, and answer, and he says, so let us consider how God actually acts. What is God's motive here? And this is found in verses 22 through 28. Listen to what he says. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sands of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. So Paul is giving us an understanding, two purposes, two motives of God's action here. One is, is that God has purpose. He has objective that we often don't understand or will never be able to see in this life. But it doesn't change the fact that God is sovereign, that he has the ability and the right to display his purpose, his will, as he sees fit. And then secondly, is God is not only displaying his power and his wrath, 
so that his glory can be seen, but he is also displaying his amazing patience and long-suffering. Have you ever thought about, and I'm guessing you have because I have and there's really nothing special about me, I have wondered in the past, why has God not come back yet? Why in all that man has done, everything that God has seen, think about it. God has been cursed. He has been just blasphemed in every way. His son was killed on the cross. God has seen, he has experienced every form of blasphemy back to him. Think about it. But yet he has been patient. He has been patient. Peter tells us that he is patient because he does not want anyone to perish. Now, does that mean you can use that verse to say that, that oh, well, then that means that everyone is going to come to salvation in Jesus Christ? No, that's not. His desire is not that everyone or anyone would perish, but there are those that he has chosen, and there are those that will never be drawn. And that is hard for us. It is hard for us when we know that it is God who calls, it is God who draws us to him. And we are to surrender to that calling. And so God is patient. He is long-suffering. And he does so so that he will be glorified, so that he will, we will be able to see his glory for his purpose. And Paul, in the latter part of this particular section, reminds us there's a remnant of the Jews who will be saved. But the Gentiles also, the Gentiles are going to, there's going to be Gentiles that are saved. And so it's not about the advantages of being a Jew or uh, not, but it's the fact that, as he says, Hosea and Isaiah both predict there will be those who are saved and those who are not. And then in his fourth argument for why God is sovereign and can do exactly what he wants, in verse 29, he says, And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left to us posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Or, in other words, if God did not draw us to himself, if we didn't stop resisting and listen to him, none of us would be safe. None of us. You see, we are all lost. All of us are lost. During Sunday school last week, the question was about good, you know, can, can good people, and, um, you know, why, why would good people not be chosen if they're good? And Franklin's answer to that in Sunday school was exactly right. None of us are good. 
Do you remember? Were you here when I preached on chapter 3 of Romans, verses 10 and 11? There is none that does good, not one. There is none that seek after God, not one. The only reason that you and I have faith or have come to faith in Jesus Christ is because God has drawn us. God has wooed us. God has come to us and presented salvation through Jesus Christ for us, to us. It is the potter's sovereign choice to do that. He decides for himself mercy and justice. It's tough. This is a tough passage. This is a tough section. But Paul closes this with a wonderful passage in verses 30 through 33. In fact, he tells us how we can tell if someone is chosen or not. I want you to listen to what he says. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. I want to say that again, and I'll help you with that in just a minute. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him, him, Jesus will not be disappointed. So what in the world is Paul saying? God is drawing us by the Spirit unto salvation. And there are those that are called and those that are not. And how can we tell who is called and who is not? And the way to tell is, what do you do with Jesus? What? do you do with Jesus? You see, what Paul is reminding us of here is that this stumbling stone, this rock that is put in our path, is going to do one of two things. Either you're going to say, hey, I'm in this for myself, I know what I'm doing, I don't need a Savior, and what we do is we're walking on that path and Jesus, we stumble over him. We just stumble over. We don't want anything to do with him. We don't see him as something that we can stand on. So you either stumble over that stone or you stand on it. And if you stand on it, you stand on it by faith, knowing that he is the foundation of your faith. He is the only one that you find hope in. And so you stand on the rock of your salvation. This is who he is. This world, this crisis that humanity faces 
is a crisis in Jesus. They do not see him, many do not see him as someone that they can believe in or have faith in. So the question really is, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? In John's Gospel, as John begins to tell the story of Jesus, there are two passages that remind us of what Jesus, who Jesus is. Jesus taught it very plainly. In 644, he says, No man can come to me except my Father draw him. I don't know how much clearer you can be with that. God is sovereign. God is the one that does the calling. And then in verse 37, he says, All that my Father has given me shall come to me. All. In other words, this chosen, these who God has elected to save will come to him. And he says, I will never, ever cast them out. Your salvation is secure. And you would say, well, wait a minute then. You've been teaching us wrong, Marty. What in the world would I have to do with me sharing the gospel in any way? If, if everyone that God has called is going to come to him, guess what? God gets to use you and me to share that gospel, to help be that drawing card, to tell the story of Jesus and who he is to us. God uses us. So the question that's left is, what do we do? What do we do with Jesus? And the only answer is to, is to respond. We respond and make him first in all ways, first in all things, because he is sovereign. He is the only God. There is no other. And if he has chosen you, you live into that chosenness knowing that the mercy and grace of God has been given to you. Thanks be to God for it. He has chosen us out of lost humanity to be a part of his kingdom because the potter has sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you have done through our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have called us to you. You have saved us. And we are clenched and held by you, never for you. We pray, Father, this morning that we would recognize your sovereignty, that you are wonderful, that you are also just, that you are magnificent, but yet you hold the reins, the future of all that there is. For you are God. Father, may we look at that in a way that not is thinking of being unfair, but it actually becomes our hope. The fact that we belong to you is our hope in knowing that all things are well. 
no matter where this world and what this world does to us. We're yours forever and ever. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.